Welcome to Jack Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Kara Radzak at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and host of Jack Chat. The purpose of today's event is to provide more information for athletic trainers and other allied healthcare professionals to ask questions and discuss the manuscript entitled Close Reduction Techniques for Glenohumeral, Patellofemoral, and Interphalangeal Joint Dislocations, which is currently available on the website as an online first publication. Today, I'm joined by two of the manuscript's co-authors, Dr. Cynthia Wright from Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington, and Dr. Barbara Brandon from the University of Washington School of Medicine. At this point in time, I would like to introduce Cynthia and Barb, and thank you so much for taking this time to speak with me today. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Yes, so thank you. The first thing that I want to ask is, um, Cynthia, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how this project came to be. Well, I am a program director at Whitworth University, as well as a clinical athletic trainer. And uh, athletic training has really evolved over time, both in our educational competencies. So obviously, in the new KD2020 standards, it includes uh, joint reductions. And as we were preparing to transition to those new standards, um, I started having a lot of conversations with our team physicians, um, Dr. Brandon, who is here, and then Dr. Ed Reisman, who was unable to join us today, about uh, what that would look like in our program. And out of those conversations and the research involved, uh, we started thinking uh, about making some, uh, I did a presentation at our district meeting and then started thinking this was something we really wanted to share with others um, to help them in their journey towards uh, doing this for athletic trainers. Thank you. And Barb, give us a little bit more information about your clinical background, please. Um, so I have been uh, the associate program director for a sports medicine fellowship in Spokane, Washington, and uh, just recently transitioned uh, to working with a community uh, federally funded clinic um, where I'm working with the underserved. And uh, during my time as the associate program director, I was a team physician with Whitworth University, worked with uh, the Spokane Chiefs, which is part of a hockey team league that is here in town and also was a team physician for the Spokane Indians, which is part of the uh, minor league baseball teams. Nice. So give us a little bit of more information of who's the target audience for this manuscript? Why did y'all decide to put it out there? The target audience is really athletic trainers. As we started looking into this topic, it was very clear and apparent there's a lot of literature out there, but none of it was targeted specifically for athletic trainers and our unique scope of practice. And so some of the techniques we talk about are also described elsewhere in the literature. In fact, all of them are. Um, but what we tried to make unique about this was that anything that you would read in the other literature that would be like, well, an athletic trainer couldn't do that or shouldn't or, or would do it differently, we tried to change that up, um, including some techniques that just don't really apply to you know, uh, on the court or on the field uh, settings. So we really tried to target it into that athletic training. Um, it is more focused towards athletic trainers in traditional settings, uh, athletic settings, but it could be applied to any athletic trainer. Thank you. And so what are some considerations for athletic trainers prior to being comfortable with developing a closed reduction technique practice? 
Some of the considerations, um, kind of the prerequisites, if you will, are to look at your own state practice act, uh, make sure that joint reductions are permitted in your state. Just because they're part of the new KD 2020 standards does not necessarily mean that they're part of your state practice act. To, uh, so in addition to looking at your state practice act, looking at your liability insurance, making sure it's covered in your liability insurance, and then also talking to your supervising physician. It has to be a conversation. Um, they have to be willing to give you standing orders and so until you're there, um, knowledge of the techniques um, isn't going to help you until you're able to apply them. And those are some of the kind of prerequisites. Thank you. Barb, can you give a little bit more of insight from the physician side of things? Of, um, if an athletic trainer is coming to you requesting standing orders, how can that conversation go really positively? Um, well, in the article, we actually sat down um, and published, uh, it's part of the table one in the article about a checklist that is available. That is a great way to start the conversation with your supervising provider um, because it kind of touches on the areas that we as um, the licensed physician that most uh, ATCs are working with as what we need to worry about from our standpoint, which is it's not just the liability of the ATC that we're working with, but it's also our liability. Mm-hmm. Our, is our company that we work with willing to take on the liability of having the athletic trainer do the reductions on field? And if so, okay, then what are the requirements that that insurance company is going to re, um, find is necessary? such as, do you need a policy? Do you need standing orders? Um, Is there a specific routine that needs to be followed? And then it's the comfort of the actual provider itself. Do you feel comfortable? Do you trust your ATs? I do. They're fantastic. I love them. Um, And so, yes, um, I would start the conversation by using that checklist that is in the article. I'm a fan of checklists and you guys created a wonderful one. Can you give us a little bit more insight into what all the checklist covers? There's four main areas. Yeah, so the checklist starts um, be with a pre-reduction assessment. So while the manuscript mostly focuses on techniques for how to do the actual reduction. The truth is, before you can do a reduction, you have to confirm multiple things. First, confirm it is a dislocation as opposed to a fracture. Both of them might present with deformity. Um, So making sure that it actually is uh, documenting neurovascular integrity, documenting and obtaining consent, as well as considering whether or not pre-reduction radiographs and or um, some kind of pain medications are needed. And if you're going through that part of the pre-reduction checklist and you say, we do need x-rays. If you don't have that capability, then that's an indication to refer. So it's kind of some things like these are the things you should be thinking about before you even select what technique to use. And then the next step is selecting the technique and doing it. Um, Once you've done it, then there's a post-reduction assessment as well. So we assess neurovascular integrity pre-reduction. We also need to assess it post-reduction so that we can document what um, their status was both pre and post um, and see whether if there's any deficits it was pre-existing or if it was due to the actual reduction technique. And then after that post-reduction assessment, which includes that neurovascular integrity, um, as well as imaging um, and obtaining imaging after the fact, um, is just post-reduction care. So what is the appropriate position to splint? Um, What is the appropriate next steps for, for care? 
Thank you. And I will state that everybody should go if you if you even don't get a chance to read the manuscript to look at the tables and that checklist and the figures that you guys did. Um, it is a great way to just do an overview of the um, of the manuscript and you'll definitely get a lot of information just from that alone. So my next question for y'all is why even reduce on site in the first place? Why not just splint and refer? Barb, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, so there are a couple of things that we mentioned in the article that are very specific to this um, that we found in the research. Um, first of all is um, the successful relocation rate is higher with a prompt reduction. Um, and also, usually if you've got a patient that is in a lot of discomfort, um, being able to put it in fairly quickly uh, calms them down, um, and then you can continue with whatever further assessment that you need to do. Like if you have a person who took a significant hit, have a shoulder dislocation, but you're also worried about a possible concussion. Um, so both um, a quick or prompt reduction and then also patient comfort are two of the main things. But the other is just the psychological trauma to the patient itself. It's very scary when you get injured um, and lots of things run through your head at that time. And so um, we always want to make sure that we put that patient comfort and that um, calming effect that you can get when you can reduce the pain fairly quickly. Thank you. And you chose three joints primarily to focus on. Why were these three, glenohumeral, patellofemoral, and interphalangeal chosen? Well, specifically with these, um, it was because of the frequency of occurrence. Um, these are probably in literature the most common of the dislocations that you are going to typically see on um, a field of play or in a court. In addition to being so common, it also we just had lots of conversations. So oftentimes uh, I would go and talk to, to Barb and Ed. Um, I would track them down on the football sideline and in between plays, uh, ask them questions about this. And the more we talked about different dislocations, you know, we would talk about an elbow and we'd be like, ooh, but there's this, but there's that. Maybe that's not a good choice. Um, the, kind of as we talked, it just kind of these three rose to the surface as the ones that my own physicians felt the most comfortable having standard standing orders for. So in a sense, the article is selfish because it focused on what my physicians said they were willing to do. Um, but I think there's also that uh, universal aspect that these are probably going to be the three that physicians are least worried about liability, about poor outcomes, um, about various other factors that might make them think that um, it's not a good choice to do a field reduction. Thank you. So before we get into some specifics about the techniques, um, I want to cover any considerations for pediatric athletes that you might have. Well, on this one, in the conversation that we had yesterday, just looking over these questions, we wanted to clarify um, what we consider pediatrics um, because um, words can be interchanged quite frequently. So for us, we were calling pediatrics or children um, 6 to 12 uh, in age range. And then you've got your teenagers, adolescents who are more 13 to 18 year olds. Um, and just by sheer nature of our jobs, we are not around on fields of play very often or on courts for that younger age group. 
Mm-hmm. So most of these dislocations typically will end up in urgent care or in the ER. Um, and so we're more addressing the older age group from 13 to 18 and above. Okay. And some of those considerations with the adolescent um, pediatrics is uh, that the techniques are very similar. The flow charts are very similar. The biggest consideration is obviously that we need parental consent, not just um, because these are minors. Um, and we also uh, considerations for fractures and gr- open growth plates. So in the younger age group, the under 12, um, their bones are still a little bit more bendy. Dislocations are less common. Um, but as they're in that adolescent range, um, looking at okay, if there was enough trauma for a dislocation, do we also have a concomitant fracture? And if so, is there growth plate involvement? So some people might want to be more conservative about saying like, no, I need that pre-reduction radiograph. But then there's also arguments that, you know, again, patient comfort, patient outcomes, you know, the ability to get a joint in promptly does lead to moderately improved patient outcomes. So it's a balancing act between those two things. Um, So very similar considerations as adults, just with the extra of having to obtain consent and think about growth rates. Thank you. So what are your go-to strategies now for these three joints? Let's talk with uh, about glenohumeral joint reduction first. For the glenohumeral joint reduction, I'll start on that one. there's a lot of different techniques out there. We don't expect that everyone knows all the techniques. What probably makes the most sense is read through a bunch of different techniques and then pick the couple that are most uh, applicable to your own clinical practice. So for me, the external rotation technique is one, it's very simple. I know even in the middle of a lot of things going on or a chaotic situation, it's something I can do by myself. I wouldn't need an assistant. So the external rotation technique. um, And then if I have a repeat offender, someone uh, who I want to teach how to manage this on their own, because they might be dislocating while uh, myself or another medical provider isn't there. um, Then the boss holes egg matter, also known as the Davos technique, um, which is a self-reduction technique, is one that I want to be teaching my patients. Uh, In this research, I learned about the scapular manipulation technique. That was one I wasn't familiar with, and I'm intrigued by it. I haven't had a chance to implement it yet, but the the percent success rate is phenomenal. Uh, patient comfort while doing it also phenomenal. So it's one that I would like to uh, incorporate in my practice, but cannot say that I've actually done so yet. Barb, have you utilized that technique before? I have not. I have read about it um, a couple of different times, um, but when we actually went back and Cynthia showed me this article showing the success rate of it, I was absolutely surprised. Um, because it's not something that we commonly see as a first-line technique, mm-hmm. uh, especially in medical school and, and subsequent training since. Um, so I was very surprised, and I'm, I, I would love to get a patient <laughs> to try it out. Um, but for me, um, I, I have three techniques, and it truly depends on the environment that I'm in. Um, so if I've got a repeat fender, just like Cynthia was stating, the boss technique is really great, um, especially that's something that you can teach a person to use, especially if they get in trouble, even when you're not around. Mm-hmm. Um, but the external rotation maneuver is my favorite, but I have to say that it's modified for me um, because I, as a practitioner, have to be aware of my limitations. I'm only five foot six and not very big. And when I'm dealing with um, a lineman on a football team or a a basketball player that's much taller than I am, 
I have to find a technique that works for me, um, that I can rely on um, and modify to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is one thing that I would highly recommend that you take into consideration as you learn these techniques is that they may need to be modified for you specifically and because of the patients that you're working on in the environment that you're working in. Um, And then the other one that I have a tendency to use is the Stimson technique, which is one that I will use if I have access to medications to help relax the patient. I've got time using that gravity. Um, it is a great thing to use, but it's not something I would do on the sidelines. It's something that I would do back in a training room or in some modified treatment trend where I've got those resources available to me. I'm really glad that you brought up the notion of having to take a technique and make it your own. Um, specifically for me being five foot two female, it's very difficult to do some of these. Um, do you have any resources, either of you, of how to find modifications of this, um, how to go about making that clinical practice your own? So for me, was actually having a lot of discussions with other providers. Um, I would have, as Cynthia said, we have a lot of sideline conversations. <laughs> um, so talking to other providers, talking to ATs, um, talking to anyone who's had experience in reductions, uh, especially when I go to meetings um, and they happen to have maybe a breakout seminar on reductions and fracture care, I'll ask my questions there and say, Hey, does anyone have any tips and tricks that help, you know, with this procedure or this one? And it's amazing what comes out of people and just their experience. And, um, I highly recommend having those open conversations with people. It really makes a difference. One other thing to take into consideration, just as you're learning this techniques, um, especially if you're working with a provider, is also finding out what techniques they're comfortable with um, because it may be a great opportunity to learn a new technique um, that um, may give you better success in certain situations. So always keep an open mind on these. (laughs) Thank you. So the other joints, the go-to techniques, there's only one for patellofemoral. Um, can you just give us a little brief overview of what that technique is and then move on to interphalangeal? Yeah, sure. I'll talk a little bit about that technique and then I'll let Barb talk about some of her tips and tricks because they really help me as I, um, <clears throat> excuse me, as I prepare to incorporate that technique. <clears throat> so that technique is um, applying a lateral to medial force on the dislocated patella while extending the knee. Um, So the knee is normally in a flex position. If they've extended it already themselves, they've probably actually already self-reduced. So their knee is in a flex position. You're applying that medial or lateral to medial force while extending the knee. Um, And as you extend that knee, you'll, you'll feel and see the reduction happen. And Barb can talk about some ways to make that easier. So this can be a very uh, upsetting one for a lot of people because it's not fun to see your kneecap on the side of your leg. Um, And so I've had a lot of people yelling and screaming um, with this one um, just because it's scary to look at and they can see it typically. Um, So having the patient um, actually sit up or lean against another person um, really helps tremendously. 
And especially it could be an extra pair of hands that kind of help with that lateral to medial uh, push as you straighten out the legs, because sometimes um, the hamstrings and the quads contract so much that it takes both of your hands to actually pull the legs straight. So I really like having an extra person around for that technique. There's been several times when there has not been anyone else around, but I will say it's much easier with the second person. Great. And how about interphalangeal joints? Both of us prefer the exaggeration method. Um, So in the literature and there's actually some gaps in the literature because most people, when they dislocate a finger, self-reduce or their coach does or their buddy does or whoever it is. So there's actually a lack of really good study data comparing the efficacy of the two techniques because by the time it gets to, you know, a, an emergency department, which is where a lot of these studies are done, it's already been reduced. So in the literature, they talk about two techniques, the exaggeration and the traction method. Um, And anecdotally, everyone I've talked to uh, prefers the exaggeration method, but you just can't prove that it's the better technique. So the exaggeration technique um, uh, is theorized to have less chance of a knockoff fracture when uh, that joint comes back into position because you're making the joints more congruent. Uh, So that's one reason why I choose the exaggeration. Okay. Any pearls with that, Barb? Well, there is there is a risk that um, there can be damage to the joint line uh, with putting these back in, or there can be a fracture that occurs as you put it back in, or there was a fracture prior to it. Um, and mm-hmm. so I can say with this one, um, if you go ahead and reduce it and it will not stay in place, definitely splint this and get them in for an x-ray immediately. Um, don't try to re-reduce it over and over again. It's much better to just splint it as is and get them in for imaging. I think another common misconception is people think, oh, it's just a finger. Um, you know, it should be easy to reduce. And many fingers are easy to reduce. But if you're having difficulty, one of the most common complications outside of fracture is actually you can get interposition of the soft tissues. For example, like the volar plate will go into that joint space. So if you're trying to reduce and you're like, this is a simple finger, why is it not going? That's one of the most common things. And if that is the case, it's not you. Um, That person is probably going to have to have a surgical fix. Um, So it's not, you know, your technique or if it were an ED doctor, it would have been better. It's just that there is something actually physically blocking the reduction. And that circles us back around to a point that the paper makes the differences between ATs and physicians trying to reduce and how ATs one shot, right? Um, And then refer out. Are there any other pearls or tricks um, to improve success that y'all have? Well, one thing that I would say and I would stress is that and it's not necessarily a pearl for, well, it is a pearl for success long-term, <laughs> but <laughs> it, the main important thing is the neurovascular. Um, if you are looking at a dislocation that is um, pretty extreme, and I'm going to go outside of the scope of this article and say something like a knee or an ankle, um, because those are other ones that uh, people will see. If you're looking at it and it does not look good and there is a chance of a fracture, really assessing for the neurovascular integrity. Do they have sensation in that foot? Um, Is there a pulse to that foot? And if you think it is bad enough, um, then you really need to just splint it and get it 
over to someone with more experience, such as an ER, um, especially if you think there's going to be surgery involved. Um, and don't even risk doing the dislocation. There has been a few times, um, I'll say in my practice and a few other physicians that I know really well, where there has been an attempt at, dislo- um, at reduction of a shoulder that also had uh, a concomitant uh, fracture of the humerus. And so put it back in, but it still doesn't look right. <sighs> I'm just going to splint this and send this. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, again, something just looks slightly off of what looks like a normal anterior dislocation of a shoulder, please just splint them in place and get them on an ambulance and into a a full ER. Thank you. Um, I think along with that thinking, one of the things I was taught, and I don't know, um, you know, if that's, if this is still taught or what other AT's background is, is I was taught when it comes to, um, if there is neurovascular compromise, initially, I thought, oh, if there's neurovascular compromise, that means I'm not allowed to touch it. And one of the things we do talk about in the article is that actually that is not an absolute contraindication. So if you're noticing some sensory deficits that actually may, or if you may, be an indication that a field reduction is more appropriate because you could actually reverse that neurovascular compromise by attempting a reduction. So why take the risk of an on-the-field reduction? Well, if they already have neurovascular compromise and you can reduce them and now they don't have neurovascular compromise, that actually has probably prohibited some bad patient outcomes. So it's not an absolute, it's a, it's a decision point in a decision tree. Is this a risk you're willing to take? What is the potential benefit and harm to the patient? And I think uh, we have a flow chart of decision-making um, for at least the shoulder in the article that helps with uh, making that decision. And always involve the the provider in that decision process because they're going to be the ones that are taking the risk associated with this. Thank you both so much. Um, What are some good resources for clinicians that are wanting to learn some more about this topic? I think a couple of the resources you could um, access are referenced in the article. So the one I started with, other than obviously picking the brains of my team physicians, uh, was uh, Robert and Hedges' uh, book. It is, uh, let's see, I actually wrote down the name, Clinical Procedures in Emergency Medicine. As I talked to multiple different physicians, like, where did you start? What was your baseline? Um, That was what they talked about. Like, this is kind of the gold standard. So that's where I started. And a lot of our recommendations are coming from that. Now, obviously, we modified them to fit AT's practice. um, But that's one uh, good resource. Um, And then there's several other articles uh, cited within the paper that uh, people could access. But that's where I started. And then for me as a provider, um, UpToDate is one resource that we use frequently. There's several ER textbooks out um, that also have a lot of reduction techniques beyond um, what Cynthia is stating. Almost all of them <laughs> have it. Um, but for pediatric um, dislocations, uh, there's a book out by Lutz von Lauer. It's L-A-E-R um, is the last name, is one book that I use quite frequently when it comes to pediatric uh, dislocations. I guess I would be remiss to not mention the NATA position statement is obviously a great resource for all athletic trainers as you start looking at um, scope and what is appropriate. So definitely start there as well. Perfect. Thank you guys both so much. And as we wrap up, um, any last uh, parting words, 
key take homes, if somebody wants to implement, start implementing this um, today, what's their first step? I think the first step, which was also talked about in that NATA position statement, is that you need to be able to, to show um, both the knowledge and the skills before you're doing this so that your team physician should be actually assessing you, like just like you're doing competencies as a student, um, that your first step is to get to the point where you could say to them, here, test me on this um, before you're doing these in the field. So this should not be practiced until you um, can document and say, I've you know, I read this, I went to the seminar, something to mm -hmm. show that you have that um, knowledge and skill. Thank you. Um, I would agree with that. Um, practice, practice, practice. Um, these don't happen very often. And so being very adept at whatever techniques that you happen to use, and I would keep it to maybe one or two, and that's it, um, are really helpful because you're going to be in a pressure situation and it's good to be very familiar with the technique that you have chosen for that reduction. Perfect. Thank you guys again so much, Dr. Wright, Dr. Brandon. We really appreciate you taking your time to talk with me today. And just a reminder to everyone out there that this material, as uh, well as all of the Journal of Athletic Training's material, is available um, open access on our website. Thank you guys again. Thank you.